Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia. I'm your host, Nick Bisley. Japan has a challenging future. Its population is declining, the economy remains anemic, while the country's security environment is extremely challenging. North Korea presents an existential threat, and China's growing military power threatens the country's long-term interests. Even though it's an affluent country, the restrictive constitution forced on it after World War II limits Japan's military and makes it dependent on its ally, the United States. But Prime Minister Shinzo Abe wants to change this, and many in Washington would welcome Japan's move. In this live podcast, I speak to Murray McLean. Murray is the chair of the Australia Japan Foundation and a non-resident fellow at the Lowy Institute. Formerly, he was a senior official at the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, from which he retired in 2012 after a 42-year career, which included a seven-year stint as Australia's ambassador to Japan between 2004 and 2011. I think one of the most striking things about Japan now is that on the one hand, it's a country that seems kind of beset with a set of almost paralyzing challenges. It has an external environment that's extremely threatening and challenging, most obviously sort of played out in in, uh, the acute threat that North Korea um, presents both to, to Japan and to the region more generally. Uh, but it's also got this, these vast and, and in some respects almost kind of structural tectonic challenges domestically in terms of its population, in terms of uh, a, an economy that it just can't quite jumpstart after you know, many decades of no growth or very, very low growth. Um, and a political system that many people have questioned in terms of its democratic credentials, in terms of its ability to respond to um, these, these meaningful challenges. And yet in spite of that, you've got uh, at the top of the political system uh, Shinzo Abe, who is clearly the dominant political figure of his generation, uh, quite possibly will be seen as one of, or if not the most important Japanese prime ministers after 1945. Uh, and, you know, and, and if we put it in contrast to Australia, where over the past five or six years, our political system has produced a kind of copy of the Japanese political system prior to Abe, which is the kind of karaoke prime ministers. And I often, <laughs> joke, to, I often joke to Japanese friends to say, um, Australia likes Japan so much that we copied your prime ministerial um, system where everyone gets a go. Uh, so there's this sort of odd symmetry about that. And I thought we might start with, um, with Abe-san. And you know, it's, it's useful to remember that before 2012, and this peri- which set off this quite extended period of political s- stability at the top end of Japanese politics, we last saw Abe Shinzo on, on a hospital gurney in 2007 when you were in Tokyo. Um, did you think you'd ever see him again? Well, certainly I thought I'd see him again, but not, <laughs> not necessarily as prime minister. So I should have said, did you and, think you'd see him again? And, and that was, you know, it was extraordinary because he was here at the APEC meeting um, and went home early and resigned that day, uh, the day he got off the plane in 2007. So the, Australia was the last sort of country he went to at that point. Um, and when I left uh, Tokyo in August of 2011, Abe Shinzo, uh, as the next prime minister, was still, wasn't even a thought, wasn't even considered. Um, But he then was elected as uh, the leader of the opposition um, in uh, August, I think it was, of uh, 2012, maybe September. Uh, And uh, why was he elected? it's, uh, I wasn't in Japan at the time, so I wasn't so intimately involved with knowing the insides and outsides of, of that particular issue. But I can say that it uh, was really uh, uh, lay down Mazaire at that particular point that he would be the next Prime Minister because um, the Democratic Party of Japan, uh, which had uh, with great uh, fanfare, Taken had won the election in 2009 by a massive majority, um, had completely stuffed up uh, its opportunity to put in place uh, for the long term a viable two-party system of um, uh, 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 parliament. Um, and 
it had uh, had changed as a prime minister uh, three or four of them during that period that the three period three year period that it was in office uh, the first prime minister Hatayama from a very uh, esteemed political family uh, was nonetheless a complete wacko and um, he he really that's a technical term folks. He, he really everybody was so struck I remember by the way and this is an anecdote that's a bit off the topic but I had instructions from you know who our Prime Minister at that very time in 2009, uh, Kevin Rudd, to be the first leader, foreign leader, to ring up Hatayama to congratulate him. And that was pretty difficult since usually the Americans and others got them. Anyway, I somehow managed to achieve that, uh, but only when I was speaking to, I was speaking to one of the uh, interlocutors who was a member of the uh, senior member of the DPJ in getting this fixed up and he said to me oh yes we will take the Australians first because Kevin Rudd is leader of the Labor Party and Hatayama will have a real point in common and that is that they both think very highly of China and want to pull away from the United States. It was a very that was very much a Vietnam War idea of um, Australia. Anyway, that just tells you a little bit about how out of touch the DPJ was and how it continued. Of course, the real reason they are in such terribly abject state come the election in September of 2012, which was won with a stunning majority by Abe as the leader of the Liberal Democratic Party, was the disaster and devastation caused by the triple disaster of 2011, uh, the earthquake, the tsunami, and all, all the nuclear disasters, and uh, and that that came on top of hopeless leadership by the by certainly Hatayama, somewhat better by Khan, the next prime minister, and then uh, the final prime minister of the DPJ was actually very sensible, uh, Norda. And he, amongst other things, uh, stared down uh, the impossible and uh, managed to get legislation through to increase the GST from five to eight and then the second time potentially from uh, eight to ten, which, by the way, for all his big majority over the last six years, Abe has been unable to um, see his way through to implement, which is um, uh, to go to the second step to 10%. And that's absolutely desperately necessary. And we'll get on to that perhaps when we talk about the economy. So Abe was lucky, lucky really, to become leader at that particular time. But it was because he had uh, a vision, a vision that um, uh, he was able to talk uh, about uh, revitalising the economy, his three arrows, uh, which um, really have, uh, he's really only successfully shot one of those three arrows. He hasn't done the fundamental structural reform uh, to do away with the heavy protectionist uh, elements that uh, hamper the uh, growth of the Japanese economy. He very much hoped to uh, have the TPP do his work for him by uh, forcing on uh, the agricultural community and others the sorts of structural reforms that uh, sometimes are more difficult to bring in through the national diet or parliament as distinct from having an external force uh, impose them on him and he reluctantly has to sort of go ahead with them. That, that said is doing him down a little bit because he has actually done Made, made huge progress over the last uh, 10 years. Japan has made huge progress over the last 10 years in actually bringing the agricultural lobby, which was hitherto just totally uh, opposed to any opening up, uh, to a rather more sensible point um, where they are prepared to. And he, in many ways, uh, have, have done so already. And that the, the JIPA, the Australia-Japan Economic Partnership Agreement um, significantly helped bring that about, um, but the, the TPP was going to take it further. 
Um, of course, to open up the agricultural sector and to uh, make it much more efficient is also part of the necessary steps that he's got to take or Japan's got to take to relieve their debt crisis as well because the um, agricultural sector is so heavily subsidised that um, any of us with our back garden of of uh, size of, of a rice would be getting uh, a 90% or 100% um, bonus uh, for what uh, what we might sell it out there in in, in the public. So it's it's hugely uh, there are a lot of issues I've I've deliberately yeah. raised just now so that we can um, uh, you, you you go ahead. Uh, yeah, no, so because so it seemed to me that Abe had this. Kind of, in some respects, kind of fortuitous clearing of the ground. So you've got the DPJ that 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 has both its own internal problems. I mean, um, Hatoyama, I think, was often referred to as the alien because of his kind of otherworldly and frankly weird um, qualities. Um, but but at, but also organisationally, this, this was a bunch of this is a political party made up of essentially LDP uh, walkouts and misfits, and there was no kind of coherent set of ideas or institutions, or more importantly, a kind of groundwork that could provide the sort of infrastructure that you need to make a viable political party in, in a country that's you know still 125 million people. This is a, a big social infrastructure you've got to create. So there's kind of good fortune in that regard, and, it, and it's awful to say it, but Fukushima is, is also kind of good fortune in the other respects, because what, what good message the LDP could put forward, particularly towards the tail end of, of their period in government, was just wiped out by this um, by the set of events that, for which they were held responsible, um, rightly, but in some respects rightly, but in some respects completely beyond their control. Completely beyond their control, really. I mean, if you look, at, if you look at um, Fukushima, um, <coughs> Khan literally had to go to the control room of TEPCO, the Tokyo Electric Power Company, and force them to tell him what really happened. Uh, in, when those reactors blew up. Uh, they were not volunteering or providing the government with that information. Yeah, no, I think, and, and, you know, yeah. the, what can you do if you're the Prime Minister and you're not being told absolutely crucial, vital information? Yeah, so, it's, so Abe has this good fortune in, in, in a lot of respects. Um, and he presents himself, I think, internally at any rate, on an economic platform. So Abe is about economic revitalization and good government and, and sensible conservative politics to, to produce you know, economic um, windfall and, and, and get the economy going. And the three arrows, so if you're not familiar with them, um, monetary, loose monetary policy, fiscal stimulus, and structural reform. And, and certainly the first one was very much in the government's control, so you can start printing money, essentially, which they did at, at, at vast expense. Um, then you have fiscal, a loose fiscal, uh, sorry, um, fiscal stimulus policy, which has been pursued, but as Murray was intimating, the cost of loose fiscal policy after 20 years of loose fiscal policy or, or stimulating fiscal policy is a jet debt to GDP ratio of about 200 and something percent. Oh, it's close to 300. 300, yeah. yeah. So this is easily the highest debt to GDP ratio of, of any OECD country by. But mind you, can I just interlude, interlude there? That is all domestic debt. Yep, it, it yes. isn't external debt, which is a, quite a big difference, of course, from compared with a lot of other countries that are in severe trouble. Yeah, so like it, Greece, for example. So it hasn't got you haven't got a bunch <coughs> of external creditors who can ring the doorbell and say let's let's collect our money, or Betty, or, or worse yet, exit um, stage left and right, and, and create a run on banks and, and the like. So it's a kind of it, it's a it, it, if to call, to say it's a kind of stable circumstance is correct in one sense, but it's an underlying big structural problem that has yet to be addressed. And then, as, as Murray was intimating, the third one is yet to happen because politically it's the hardest. So this is structural reform about whether it's agriculture, other forms of uh, liberalisation. Perhaps most importantly, one of the things, and we'll come back to this, is about um, gender and gender participation in the workplace. Japan has one of the lowest levels of female participation in the workforce. And you know, as we know in, in um, OECD countries, female participation in the workforce has been a big source of productivity growth and, and overall GDP growth um, over the past 25 or 30 years. You've got more people working. Um, on the flip side, of course, is the, Trump si is the Trump phenomenon, which has been certain other groups, particularly middle-aged men who used to get paid more for what they do, are, are getting paid less. So it's not cost-free. But Abe comes in on this sort of technocratic economic story. But he's got hidden in his cape, if you want to call it that, 
or hidden in his jacket or his little black man bag, uh, a story about security reform and a kind of nationalism and national redemption that is much more controversial and challenging. Yeah. Um, so what, from your point of view, you know, when you were watching Abe and particularly that side of the LDP, that conservative side of the LDP, um, what's your sense of that, of what he wants to achieve in terms of that, both the sort of security stuff, and we might want to talk a bit more detail about that in a moment, but the broader vision, particularly the sort of nationalist vision for Japan, what's he, what's he want to achieve? Well, I, you know, he, he in in one sense, it's it's a completely uncontroversial vision that he has, and that is to, like like any self-respecting leader of a country or prime minister of the country, he wants his country to be prosperous, uh, people enjoying uh, an increasing standard of living, and to be able to play uh, what we would regard as a normal role in world affairs. And that uh, effectively means that if you want to be, uh, you know, given that Japan is still the third largest economy uh, and uh, has significant uh, influence in the international uh, financial markets and, uh, uh, and what else, that he wanted to back up the economic strength that Japan has in relative terms to the rest of the world um, with what any self-respecting nation wants and that is a defence force, a security system that uh, is not hampered uh, with one hand tied behind its back by a constitution that does not allow it to uh, go to, the, uh, to its own defence. Uh, if uh, it is involving a third party, uh, and uh, for example, and so so that was that was the very that that was that's the main motive behind it, and uh, he is. You have to then just if I can just step back for a second to the context in which all of this is being thought about. A, it's 60, 70 years when he 60, 70 years since the election. Uh, sorry, since the, the end of the war. Um, it's 60, 70 years since the current constitution was uh, written for Japan by uh, the Americans. Um, and it's uh, a changed regional environment where uh, up until, let's say, the year 2000, Japan was indisputably the most prominent uh, economy and actor, if you could put it that way, in Asia apart from the United States. Uh, and it was only with the huge growth of China that's taken place, as we all know, over the last 20 years, uh, in the years following the Tiananmen crisis and all of what uh, Deng Xiaoping brought on from 1992 onwards, that um, Increasingly, and I, 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 it, it was really about the time at the turn of the century when Japan became increasingly transfixed by uh, the growth of China, and uh, much more so than what its probably immediate current concerns are, which is North Korea. But um, that that those though, though those issues were um, confronting. Abe, confronting the LDP and, and a small group called the um, uh, Nippon Kaigi, which is basically a, a strongly nationalistic uh, right-wing part of the LDP, um, who didn't want Japan to be trodden under by this rising China uh, and all the attention that it gets from the world, and to make sure that somehow Japan stands on its own feet, uh, can act in its own right um, without having to um, uh, play second fiddle to the United States or to some other force. You might recall that in 2005, when um, uh, Australia first went into the southern Iraq to provide the to, 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 to participate there as part of the international coalition, that the reason we went in there was, was to actually provide the security protection for the Japanese 
self-defence force engineering group that was there. They could not defend themselves uh, in that in that theatre, and so that that was sort of a broader thing than just Abe and the LDP. It was a, a, a general view within Japan that we should. Goodness me, we've, we're such a, 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 a prominent country, still the second large economy at that stage, and yet we can't defend ourselves. Yeah, and, th and there was also that sense, I think, that any, you know, Japan, in some respects like Australia, is, is in fact, in, in many respects, more, much more so than Japan, is dependent on the United States for its defence and security. It's in a much more vulnerable and insecure part of the world. Um, and in any junior-senior alliance relationship, there's always that fear that you have if you're the junior partner that's dependent on someone else, that maybe in the event of something going down, your senior partner may not actually be reliable. They may not actually show up. Mm. And, sure. and are they actually going to treat an attack on um, Fukuoka as if it were an attack on San Francisco, whether that's conventional or, or a nuclear attack? And so I think what you had also is that sentiment of, this is also not in our self-interest to sit here and forever have you know, our, our hands tied behind our back in terms of our security and defence because, and, and this is where the sort of Trump moment, I think, is, has made this a really acute phenomenon, which is up, in, up until that, up until I think November 8th of last year, that was still an abstraction, the idea that the US may not come and it's always there and you, you wake up at two in the morning and your sense of perspective is somewhat lost and you fear this, you know, unreliable ally might be there. But then they go and vote in Trump and the unreliable ally looks like an actually existing phenomenon in which the US may not come to your aid because you've got a president who's campaigned actively on that very thing. Mm. And so that you have this environment that says, you know, that's ex an external set of in, in interests, you know, China, long-term threat, North Korea, short-term threat, you know, non-traditional security threats, ISIS, terrorism, all that sort of stuff that's saying, you know, you, you're going to need to do more to look after yourself plus that big security blanket that you've come to know and love and feel warm, warm and, and cosy underneath, all of a sudden is not providing you with the comfort that it was in the past. So you've got that, and yet Abe finds it really hard to do it. It continues to be controversial inside Japan and outside, and every time he gets to the point of pushing things a little further than, than a lot of people like, his opinion polling goes and collapses south. There's, How's he, why has he not been able to kind of reconcile the, these two, the economic story and the security story, do you think? Well, um, okay, well, uh, I, think, I think the one, one particular element that unless you go to Japan and sort of sense it and feel it within the community, it's really hard to understand. But there is still a majority view within Japan amongst the population uh, that is basically pacifist in nature. And uh, even though most people in Japan, and that is majority certainly, um, are not opposed to the US alliance and, and are very well disposed to the United States, there is on the other hand this uh, view that, well, we had this horrible experience which we were responsible for in the Second World War. We don't want to repeat that. We had Hiroshima, Nagasaki, we don't want to repeat that. And that, of course, informs also the um, strong view within the public uh, about um, nuclear uh, weapons. Um, and since the Fukushima disaster following the earthquake and the tsunami in 2011 that has increased that 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 has stuck as it were to um, nuclear energy which of course up to that point was 28 percent of the total energy mix within Japan and had been intended to increase to 40 percent by plans um, and so I think that's the biggest element and makes makes it so much more difficult for um, Abe and, and his cohort who want to proceed with um, reforming or at least slightly amending the constitution to allow for more, um, to allow for this quote institutional normalisation of Japan and its activities. Um, the 
the so 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 that's that's I think the big factor. There are lots of other reasons mm -hmm. as well. But if I could just go back a little bit to just talking about the uh, where 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 Japan is at now in terms of its security posture and and what it's able to do in terms institutionally otherwise, we've actually seen really quite an incremental set of changes leading to quite a big change over the last number of years. Ever since really the 1950 constitution, there's been step-by-step -step approach to, as it were, breaking out of being completely shackled uh, by a constitution allowing it not to, um, allowing Japan really to do nothing in terms of its own self-defense to a situation now where it's got arguably one of the most efficient defence forces, the SDF so-called, the Self-Defence Force. Um, it's, uh, it's now reinterpreted the uh, relevant article of its constitution, Article 9, to allow for collective self-defence. Uh, which has now been put into legislation two years later in 2015, um, which means that it can, um, it doesn't have to, well, it can actually take activities which allow it to come to the assistance of a third party if that party is under threat from, from somebody else uh, and that also has an impact on Japan. So, so those are the elements that essentially make it uh, inform any decision as to whether they use where to use force but it does mean for and the classic example is that uh, the Japan can now come to the assistance of a Japanese uh, sorry an American warship in the in the Sea of Japan in the event that the North Koreans are lobbing a missile uh, towards it um, and they can they can shoot it down now with their Aegis uh, weapon system that uh, that uh, could um, make that so 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 we've really come a long way. While I was in Japan, these developments were happening. Uh, in your intro introduction, introductory remarks, Nick, you mentioned the signing of the Joint Declaration on Security Cooperation between Australia and Japan in 2007, which was the first such arrangement that Japan had with any other country other than the United States, um, and. That uh, was between Howard and Abe, but interestingly, and I often make this point when I'm speaking publicly, it's not been just a, an Australian coalition party approach to Japan, it's been actually a bipartisan approach by um, uh, the two parties in Australia, because during my time I saw both, both sets of uh, government in Australia, and both of them pushed through quite strongly uh, our side of the reforms, which included uh, filling out this this uh, joint declaration to um, to what we now have as a cross an AXA, an, AXA, an acquisition and cross servicing agreement, and we've, we're we're also lo looking at other significant developments. But also, uh, Japan uh, has now passed as part of this reinterpretation of the constitution, Article Nine the ability for Japan to ex export um, uh, weapon systems and, wep and defence and military technology uh, to certain countries that are basically friends and allies. Um, and uh, Australia, and this was partly being, this was partly quickened by the distinct prospect back a couple of years ago that uh, Japan would be, would win the contract to provide um, Australia to build the to build Australia's submarine fleet. Uh, anyway, that's another matter we can get onto some other time, perhaps. But but uh, all, 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 all of all of all of all of what I'm really trying to say is that there's been a huge change from say the 50s, even from the beginning of this century, before 2007, um, uh, and that's been brought upon partly by developing nationalist sort of sentiment within Japan, partly by the exigencies of a, a big looming threat of China uh, growing by the day, and by the um, increasingly now in the last few years, but particularly in the last few months, by this 
real and uh, present threat of North Korea's um, um, missile and, and, uh, and nuclear program. Yeah, I'll, I'll, we'll come back to the Australia relationship in a moment, but one thing, whenever I go to Japan, and I get, try to get up there at least once a year, um, whenever I go there, there's three things always happen. One is um, I feel appallingly badly dressed. The second thing is I feel wildly overweight. And the third is I feel very young. And at 44, I'm not. I can fool myself that I am. No, you're, you're, you're very young. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was once young. I am no longer. As my, as my eight-year-old daughter said last night, Daddy, you're old. I'm young. Um, but there's a serious point, which is Japan is aging and aging very, very rapidly. 125 million people is, is projected to become about 90 million people over the next 25 or 30 years. The, 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 and it's visible. You, know, you walk around Japan and you see an, an aging society in all its manifestations. And interesting, interesting watching how an, a, a society like that, an advanced industrial society, copes with aging. But the reality is this is an economy that is going to shrink as a result of that. This is a country that's going to become less important as a result of that. What's your sense of how that's going, how that will play out? Is Japan ever going to t turn towards immigration as a way of managing that as, as countries like Australia and the United States and Britain have? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's absolutely right that uh, Japan is right up the top end of those countries that are ageing and in their population. And, you know, uh, obviously following the war, there was a huge boom of, of babies and they're like me, they're, um, and here in Australia, um, they are increasingly getting older and out of the workforce. Um, but they also have something like 60% of the assets and the uh, the the money, so they are the ones who are the spenders. Uh, they're the ones who go overseas on holidays. Um, so they're still actually quite an important part of the economy. And and unless there's some distribution back over over time over the coming decades or so, uh, there will be some dramatic changes, I think, in consumption patterns and otherwise in Japan. But but that's absolutely right that the um, the uh, uh, population will will irrevocably or uh, uh, diminish uh, what down to whatever it will be as you say 90 it could even be less could mm. be more I suppose and so what about its birth rate well its birth rate has had a little bit of an increase or the, the fertility rate I should say to be accurate has has shown an increase in not very significant um, but the whole issue of immigration or migration into Japan s remains as sensitive as it ever was. And um, this has a lot to do with uh, cultural and uh, ideas of, of Japanese racial purity. And um, it's uh, therefore very difficult to overcome in, in many respects. There are very significant and prominent politicians. You know, I remember I was having, I had lunch with one of those particular politicians who's unfortunately no longer in office. He'd been previously a very senior minister in the LDP government 10 years ago now probably, um, who was passionately in favour of immigration but he knew he couldn't get it through mm. the LDP. Um, uh, what's happened, what happens, and anybody who visits Japan will see it, you go to big camera if you're going there to, for your electronics, and half, if not more, of the shop assistants are Chinese. And, because I can hear them speaking Mandarin, I, I speak Mandarin, it's very convenient going there because it's one place that I can communicate successfully because my Japanese is not up to it, but my, my Chinese is. But, um, uh, and, and you see this actually in a number of other areas. Mm. So it's by stealth to, to a certain extent that the migration is happening. Um, and you do quite often come across mixed marriages between Chinese and Japanese. Um, and uh, there are, of course, quite a few qualified Filipinos who are going in there, who are uh, often are the nurses, particularly in the aged care area, uh, which, of course, is a growing industry. And um, 
then there are people of Japanese ethnic origin who are second or third generation who've come from South America after the big migrations from there, from Japan down there at the end of the 19th century. So um, the, 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 there is, as it were, some refreshing of the population and, and uh, I think it will gradually happen more, possibly less by stealth. So we'll, we'll see. But of course, a lot of these people are supposed to go back after four years, and I suppose most of them do, but they are, generally speaking, replaced. Yeah, yeah I was talking to a sociologist at, um, at Kyushu University in April, <coughs> and, and she was saying there's actually, we're experimenting with migration um, in its illegal forms. So overstay, th there's actually a lot of people who come to work and then they overstay, and, there's, and it's actually at, at, at a scale that's not like at a place like Australia or Britain or anywhere like that. But it's not it's not zero either, no, and and not. so it's so it's it's something to watch. But I think my sense is, if you look at Japan and think where's it going to be in twenty or thirty years, it's going to be a lot smaller than it was. I don't yeah. think there's any yeah. any prospect of that shift. But if, if you're talking about the, you know, you, you spoke about uh, the economy shrinking, um, there are there are ways that uh, can circumvent some of that, which uh, would be, for example addressing the hugely serious issue of gender inequality, or gender parity, I should say, in a lack of parity, gender in terms of access to, in terms of the work, work, workforce. There's so much unused talent in Japan, largely um, uh, women, um, who particularly, if they have married, are uh, basically lost to the workforce, possibly for the rest of their uh, uh, work, uh, uh, working, uh, working age uh, career. That is gradually being addressed and people understand it. But, you know, we've got to uh, overcome, Japan's got to overcome the issues of um, uh, uh, accepting that women can both bear children and work. And um, uh, so, you know, there's, there's, while there are some welcome increases in availabilities of, uh, of childcare and that sort of thing, this, uh, the, the pace needs to quicken on that. And uh, to give him his due, Abe actually understands that quite well. Yeah, and, and those things, and I mean, as we know in Australia and in other OECD countries, um, Gender, the gender story can move really, really quickly, mm. and it certainly did in Australia in a generation yeah. um, or so. I want to turn now to the um, international side of, of the equation, and particularly look at some of Japan's key <coughs> relationships. And I think with the election of uh, Donald Trump, most allies of the United States and leaders were kind of faced with this fairly invidious situation in which they had to go and deal with this guy and an administration that was unpredictable, unknown in some respects. You know, a lot of, uh, you know, normally you, you have a, a foreign representation in DC that builds networks with incoming governments and you sort of have a, have a Rolodex of people and you know how to grapple with them. The Trump people were completely out of left field. No one had contacts with them. They were very hard to get to them. I mean, famously, uh, Joe Hockey had to cash in some favors with Greg Norman to get the phone, to get a phone call with, um, with Trump, which I'm, I wouldn't have publicised if I had been Mr. Hockey, but anyway. Um, but Shinzo Abe is, is striking for his ability to, to develop a good relationship with, with Trump. He seemed to have a really strong set of instincts for how you handle a guy like this. He was the first world leader to go and see Trump in person in, on his way to an APEC meeting, handed over the perfect presento in a solid gold driver. Um, and knew how to talk to Trump, which is don't talk about policy, don't, don't talk anything, talk family, talk basically relationship building, kind of old school Japanese business 101 from the 1980s. Um, and, and since then, he has shown, uh, I think, amongst the Democratic allies of, of the United States, I think he stands out as the one who knows how to handle Trump best. And, and in stark contrast, I think, to, to Turnbull and the Australia relationship with, with Trump, which has been you know, difficult to say the very least. I mean, not just the phone call. I think the personal relationship is, is not good. Trump Turnbull's, you know, there was that um, satirical video that came out, um, which is not going to ca be catastrophic for the relationship, but it's, it's not the sort of thing Prime Minister Abe would have done in a, in a pink fit. Um, 
So where do you think the Japan-US uh, relationship is going to go under Trump and Abe? Because I, in my view, I think Abe sees in Trump an enormous opportunity. He sees him as a kind of, and, and uh, for, for a whole range of reasons. But I was wondering what your sense of where things are going to go is. Are we going to see a continuation of the trends that have been in place? Are we going to see an acceleration of those? Um, or are we in unpredictable Trump land and, you know, God knows? Well, um, the way I see it uh, uh, is I completely agree with you that he has approached the building of the relationship with Trump um, extraordinarily um, skillfully. Uh, as I understand it, a um, huge amount of discussion was took place within uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and, and the Cabinet Office and the National Security Council as to how on earth they were going to manage this. And they made a very clear decision, well, we've got, a, we've got all this doubt hanging over us about uh, whether the Americans are going to force us to pay double what we... Uh, have been contributing to the Defence Alliance and and all of that. Uh, and despite their huge misgivings with Trump, it was very, very carefully planned what they've done. And uh, he's basically sticking to that um, approach, which I think uh, doesn't suggest that he... I, I, where I slightly disagree with you, Nick, is that I, th I don't think there's any great love in as such. Mm. I don't think they have any great um, uh, passion for, the, for Trump in Japan, but it's a matter of uh, sheer and utter pragmatics and um, uh, making sure that the security relationship, which has hitherto underpinned uh, Japan's entire economic <coughs> success, as well as its own security umbrella, uh, continues for that time being, uh, well, for the foreseeable mm. future. So, so there's a slight difference of view there, I think. But that said, um, we just have to go back again to what totally preoccupies and transfixes the, the strategic policy makers in Japan, and that is the growth of China, and the um, subset of that, which is the North Korean uh, missile and nuclear weapons development. And if you don't have the United States solidly lined up on side with you in that situation as the bulwark, then you're going to be pretty apprehensive about what's going to happen. But of course, the added element to uh, Abe is that he has seen and saw even back in 2006 when he was first Prime Minister I had the opportunity when sitting next to him during a, a Prime Minister's rugby we had a special year of exchange in, in Japan Australia-Japan exchange in the and uh, I, I was sitting next to Abe at a, the Australian Wallabies versus the Japanese team, which in that day, those days, was really very weak. Anyway, so there was not much to watch, which wasn't embarrassing for, for Abe. So we were talking quite a lot about things. And he, at that stage, said, I, and we'd been, I'd been negotiating for 12 months to get the Japanese to convert the outcomes of a feasibility study into a negotiation for the free trade agreement. And uh, I asked Abe about this and said, you know, we really want to get to that point where we can have the, have the um, uh, negotiation formally commence. And he said, yes, we will do it, Ambassador, uh, because Australia is so important to Japan as a security partner. And what I mean by that is that at that point in 2007, Six seven, Abe was moving beyond complete reliance on the United States, albeit that that was the bulwark to go with uh, significant players in Asia, such as Australia, um, 
to uh, increase its um, options, I suppose, or to, to improve its own coalition of, of friends within the region. And that informed, at that time, the rather um, hazy, hazy sort of idea, which was not terribly well formed, of Australia and Japan joining with the United States and India in a quadripartite alliance of sorts, which as soon as Kevin Rudd and Stephen Smith took over the uh, handles of power here when they won the election in whenever it was, November of 2007, they um, pulled right back out of, even though I think Howard and Downer hadn't been all that delighted about the prospect of it either. But since then, I think that's, that's the sort of alliance building or friends making that Abe and Japan has gone at, uh, at a greater pace. India is very much a focus. Uh, today, um, you know, the, the J Japan was delighted that Modi won the election in India because he was considered by Japan as a, a close friend of Japan. And he is. And uh, the uh, current imbroglio over a small piece of land in Bhutan, which is uh, in the triangle sort of between China and India and Bhutan, um, that has uh, meant India has gone even closer to, to um, Japan than it might have otherwise been willing to go. So um, I, think, I think we're seeing those sorts of developments happening at the moment, quite apart from just um, cozying up to Trump and making sure that that's all in place. Yeah, so secure, secure that core relationship, yeah. regardless of who's in 1600 yeah. Pennsylvania Avenue, and start buttressing it with that's some right. other struts. Yeah. Before we take questions, I'll just finish with the question about China, um, because I think it's probably the most important and most fraught uh, of the major power relationships in uh, our region, in the sense that it's we kind of we tend to there's the U.S. and China, and that sort of dominates the conversation, and, and, and rightly so in some respects. But it's a relationship which has got historical animosity. It's got contemporary. The politics of that historical animosity play is bound up in, particularly in China, but not just in China, um, and their physical proximity to one another. There's contested territories, particularly the, the islands in the East China Sea. Um, and yet uh, Abe recently um, has made an overture around the Belt and Road Initiative that many interpret as um, a kind of an attempt to, to defrost to some degree that relationship. Where, what, what's your sense of how things are currently traveling between Japan and, and um, the PRC? And you know, do you think it's the it's the fault line that's going to be the thing that, if it's managed, Asia's future will be okay. If it's not, it's going to get really ugly. Well, I think um, warily is the word I'd use. Mm. The relationship between China and Japan. I uh, think it's instructive to look back over the last 50, 60 years of the relationship between those two countries, China and Japan, albeit that China's grown hugely in the last 20 years, and that's put a rather different complexion on the relationship than before. But uh, the normal is unpredictability. In other words, you can suddenly have a Chinese fishing boat um, ram a, a Japanese Coast Guard vessel deliberately or otherwise, I mean, I mean whether it asked to by, by the Chinese uh, military or otherwise, cause a complete breakdown in relations for a couple of years, as happened uh, in 2010. And, um, and this is because of the, of the factors that you pointed to, which are, of course, the historical legacy of the war, um, which uh, Japan never really handled as well as, say, Germany did in Europe um, uh, because of its reluctance to 
provide the abject nature of apology, uh, unreserved apology, I suppose, that uh, <coughs> Germany did, uh, and still, um, unfortunately, allows China to use to its advantage against China, uh, Japan uh, when uh, either the Prime Minister or a whole row of cabinet ministers visit the Yasukuni Shrine or somebody within the LDP uh, talks about um, revising the apology on comfort women or whatever it may be. Um, it, this allows uh, China to yank the, the chain once again to try and put uh, uh, Japan on the back foot. And so it really just needs a little incident here or there um, to change what may look as a well and truly papered over relationship that uh, is benefiting both sides. Now having said all that, and I'm going to address the specific nature of your point there, Nick, apropos of Abe's recent statement that they saw, they were interested in the, one, the Belt Road initiative uh, in, in China. Very sensibly so, in my opinion, that they said that. But it does underline what rides through all of these troubled times, no matter what caused them, and that is the economic partnership between the two of them. Let's not forget that um, for Japan, just like for Australia, China is its biggest trading partner. There is huge Japanese investment in, in China. Um, and uh, that continues even despite um, Japanese businessmen's uh, vehicles being rolled over and burnt during protests that sometimes occur in China. Um, it's not to say they don't have an impact, but, but that's the continuum. So I see a big distinction between the economic partnership on the one hand and the security threat that Japan sees coming from China, uh, the fact that China is uh, super uh, nationalistic in its own attitude, not just to Japan, but to the whole region. Uh, China is rather prematurely, in my view, but nonetheless, I suppose, understandably, given its uh, economic might, um, seeking to have everybody perform tribute or to, to pay tribute to China as it feels the rest of the region should do, uh, a la history over the last uh, 2,000 years. Um, so on that, I, I guess, glass half full theme, um, <laughs> we draw today's discussion to a close. Um, please join me in thanking Murray McLean for a fantastic conversation. Thank you. Thank you. That was Murray McLean, one-time Australian ambassador to Japan, and you have been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from Latrobe Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it on iTunes or SoundCloud, and you can follow Latrobe Asia on Twitter at Latrobe Asia. I'm Nick Bisley, and thanks for listening. <laughs>